Are you studying for your board exams and looking for low-cost, high-quality practice questions? Well, look no further than the High Yield Family Medicine Patreon page. For just $5 a month, you'll gain instant access to over 100 board-style practice questions, each complete with detailed explanations and focusing on all the high-yield topics you need to know for test day. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your studying and enhance your knowledge and skills in family medicine. Sign up now at patreon.com slash highyieldfamilymedicine. Link in the description. Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of the High Yield Family Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be doing an overview of some of the most high-yield things you need to know for the NBME as it pertains to red blood cell disorders. This includes various hemoglobinopathies, hemolytic anemias, enzymatic or nutritional deficiencies, cell wall abnormalities, as well as various disorders of defective erythropoiesis. We'll be going over all of these and more today, trying as always to leave you with a big picture idea of what's really going on while sprinkling in some high-yield tidbits along the way. If you find this information helpful, please consider subscribing. If you subscribe right now, you'll be helping the algorithm to reach more students who may also find it helpful, and in doing so, you'll be helping to make the world a smarter place. Thank you. And now, my friends, let's begin our discussion on red blood cell disorders. Let's kick things off with sickle cell anemia. Sickle cell anemia is actually the number one most common genetic disorder in the world, and primarily affects populations where malaria is endemic, namely sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. This association is thought to be due to an intrinsic benefit for carriers of the sickle cell gene, as those who are heterozygous for the sickle cell trait will actually have a small fraction of defective red blood cells in their circulation, and these are more likely to be picked up by the spleen and thereby reduce the burden of severe infection. Sickle cell anemia is caused by a single amino acid change in the beta-globin gene at the sixth codon position, wherein the negatively charged glutamic acid is switched out for the hydrophobic amino acid valine. The effect of this change, which is a missense mutation by the way, is that when the hemoglobin molecule is unbound to oxygen, such as in deoxygenated states like respiratory infections, it will undergo an allosteric change that makes it susceptible to aggregating with other hemoglobin molecules, resulting in polymerization and distortion of the overall red blood cell shape into something that resembles a sickle. Sickle cells are problematic for a number of reasons but the main reason being that red blood cells must be very elastic and malleable in order to make their way through the tiny capillary beds. And so it's very common for patients with sickle cell anemia to have vasoocclusive episodes, wherein a clump of these sickle cells will get stuck together in the capillaries, causing local tissue hypoxia, lots of pain, as well as a host of other symptoms depending on the region of the body where the vasoocclusion occurs. When red blood cells clump together like this, they are often subject to lots of shearing forces and eventually burst, releasing their contents into the bloodstream in a process known as intravascular hemolysis. In intravascular hemolysis, patients will have very low levels of haptoglobin, the protein that scavenges free hemoglobin, high levels of lactate dehydrogenase, indirect hyperbilirubinemia, which can lead to pigment gallstones, and in some cases they will also have brownish-red urine caused by urinary hemosiderin. Excessive free iron in the bloodstream is a big problem, because when iron is unbound in its ferrous 2 plus form, it is extremely volatile and capable of forming free hydroxyl radicals via the Fenton reaction, and this can cause tons of inflammation to local tissue and accelerate end organ damage. 
When this damage affects the vasculature of the bone, it could sometimes result in a piece of the infarcted bone becoming necrotic and chipping away, along with chunks of fat from the bone marrow, in order to create a fat embolism. The fat embolism can then get lodged in the pulmonary vasculature, and this is a potential cause for a common emergency seen in patients with sickle cell anemia known as acute chest syndrome. Acute chest syndrome is when the sickling of red blood cells and or a fat embolism create an obstruction in the pulmonary vasculature, causing an abrupt VQ mismatch in a section of lung. Acute chest syndrome can occur at any age in patients with sickle cell anemia, but it is most commonly seen in young children who have an underlying pulmonary infection, as this is the event that likely precipitates hypoxemia, causing sickling and eventually a vasoocclusion crisis of the pulmonary vasculature. Patients with acute chest syndrome will often have fever, chest pain, tachypnea, and in this clinical picture, a chest x-ray showing a new pulmonary infiltrate would be diagnostic. Treatment for acute chest syndrome is with pain control, supplemental oxygen in order to reverse the polymerization of hemoglobin, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and in severe cases, you would do something called an exchange transfusion, wherein some of the patient's blood is removed in order to get rid of the defective red blood cells, while simultaneously transfusing them with a batch of healthy cells. Acute chest syndrome is one of the rare indications for an exchange transfusion, with the other big one being hemolytic anemia of the newborn, which we talk about in episode 8. So just keep those two indications in the back of your mind if you see exchange transfusion as an answer on the exam. One of the other organs that is very commonly affected in sickle cell anemia is the spleen, which, along with the liver and lymph nodes, comprises the reticuloendothelial system. The reticuloendothelial system is where extravascular hemolysis occurs, and this is basically the process wherein a network of macrophages and other monocytes, living mostly in the spleen, monitor all the circulating blood that comes in, and their job is to phagocytose anything that shouldn't be there, including microbes and also old or damaged red blood cells. A typical red blood cell has a lifespan of about 120 days, but in patients with sickle cell anemia, the spleen is working overtime in order to consume all of the sickle cells, and this excessive extravascular hemolysis leads to splenomegaly, fibrosis, and eventual auto-infarction of the spleen leading to significant splenic dysfunction by late childhood. For this reason, it's recommended that all children with sickle cell anemia should start taking prophylactic oral penicillin starting from age 2 months up until the age of 5 years, after which time most patients are at significantly less risk for severe infection and may discontinue penicillin prophylaxis. In addition, all patients diagnosed with sickle cell anemia should receive immunizations against the encapsulated organisms Strep pneumo, Haemophilus influenza type B, and Neisseria meningitidis, as these organisms are much more capable of causing infections in those with asplenia. Another common complication of sickle cell anemia is something called splenic sequestration. Splenic sequestration mostly occurs in young children, and this is where there is an abrupt vaso-occlusive episode of the splenic capillaries that eventually propagates and obstructs much larger vessels, causing a sudden and dramatic enlargement of the spleen. As the blood continues to flow into the spleen and becomes sequestered, patients will experience sudden signs of severe anemia, such as weakness and pallor, as well as signs of hemodynamic instability, with tachycardia and hypotension. Treatment of splenic sequestration is to transfuse with packed RBCs. Be careful not to select splenectomy as an answer choice for preventing further splenic sequestration episodes, as splenic sequestration is very rarely ever seen in older children or adults with sickle cell, 
and this is because once the spleen is inevitably auto-infarcted, it won't be receiving much blood supply anyway, and thus won't pose any future risk. Then there's preopism, which is a vaso-occlusive crisis of penile tissue, causing a painful erection that, if sustained for too long, can cause a necrosis of the erectile tissue. Preopism can be treated with oxygen and oral pseudoephedrine, which is an alpha agonist that can constrict the veins of the penis. Erections are due to venous relaxation, so pseudoephedrine works by doing the opposite and thereby allows the venous blood to flow out. If that doesn't work, then you could use a needle on each side of the penis to aspirate blood from the corpus cavernosum. So to summarize, long-term management of sickle cell anemia includes pain control for vaso-occlusive episodes, oral penicillin prophylaxis in children from age 2 months to 5 years, vaccination against strep pneumo, haemophilus influenza type B, and Neisseria meningitidis. Another therapy often used is hydroxyurea, which increases the proportion of fetal hemoglobin in the circulation and reduces the incidence of sickling. Next up, let's discuss thalassemia. But before we do, let's briefly discuss the three major types of hemoglobin found in the body. Type A hemoglobin is composed of two alpha chains and two beta chains, and this comprises about 95% of adult hemoglobin. Type A2 hemoglobin is composed of two alpha chains and two delta chains, and this is about 3% of circulating hemoglobin. And lastly, there's fetal hemoglobin, or hemoglobin F, and this is composed of two alpha chains and two gamma chains. Fetal hemoglobin makes up about 2% of the total circulating hemoglobin in adults, but it's actually the majority type of hemoglobin seen in neonates, and levels of hemoglobin F will normally drop within the first few months of life. Thalassemias are characterized by defects in either alpha chain production or beta chain production, so let's go through each of these now. Alpha thalassemia, similar to sickle cell, is more common to malaria endemic regions, and this is characterized by a deletion of one or more of the alleles that produce the alpha chain of hemoglobin. There are four alleles that are responsible for the production of alpha chains, and the severity of alpha thalassemia is dependent on how many alleles are affected. If only one out of the four alpha chains are deleted, then these patients are considered silent carriers and will not typically exhibit any symptoms. If two out of the four alpha chain alleles are deleted, then this is known as alpha thalassemia traits, and these individuals may present with a mild microcytic anemia with an MCV less than 80 femtoliters. If three out of the four alpha chains are deleted, then these patients have a moderate to severe form of alpha thalassemia known as hemoglobin H disease. In hemoglobin H disease, there is a much higher proportion of beta chains relative to alpha chains, and so these excess beta chains will be more likely to form tetramers with each other in order to form an abnormal hemoglobin variant composed of four beta chains, and this is known as hemoglobin H. The problem with hemoglobin H is that it has a much stronger affinity to bind to oxygen, and this results in red blood cell precursors that are highly prone to intramedullary rupture within the bone marrow before they even get a chance to enter the circulation. Patients with moderate alpha thalassemia will also produce hemoglobin BARTs, which are hemoglobin tetramers formed from four gamma chains. Gamma chains, if you'll remember, are found in fetal hemoglobin in pairs alongside a pair of alpha chains, but when it's just four gamma chains together, then it's called hemoglobin BARTs and these are very unstable and highly prone to cause rupture of the red blood cell. Patients with moderate alpha thalassemia will have a microcytic and hypochromic anemia with an MCV less than 80 femtoliters. 
Treatment for alpha thalassemia is with chronic blood transfusions at regular intervals. Special care should be taken for any patient receiving chronic blood transfusions, including monitoring their ferritin levels, as a ferritin level over 1,000 micrograms per liter is indicative of hemochromatosis, or excess iron deposition. Hemochromatosis is dangerous because it can lead to stunted growth in children, liver failure, joint pain, bronzing of the skin, and diabetes mellitus due to iron deposition in the pancreas. Treatment for patients receiving chronic blood transfusions that develop hemochromatosis is to use an iron chelator, such as IV deferoxamine, or orally taken deferoprone or deferazerox. Be careful though, because you might also see these bronze diabetes symptoms in hereditary hemochromatosis, which is an autosomal recessive disorder that mostly affects middle-aged white men, and the treatment for hereditary hemochromatosis is not with iron chelation, but is instead with phlebotomy at regular intervals. And finally, for the alpha thalassemias, there is the most severe form, wherein all four of the alleles for the alpha globin chain are deleted, resulting in a complete absence of alpha chain production. These patients are basically only capable of producing hemoglobin H and hemoglobin BARTs, and as a result, these patients will usually die in utero due to high drops fatalis. Next up, let's discuss the beta thalassemias. Beta thalassemias are more commonly seen in Mediterranean populations, and these are caused by a mutation to one or both of the two alleles coding for the beta globin chain. When one beta chain allele is affected, this is known as beta thalassemia minor, and is characterized by reduced beta chain production, usually without any symptoms. However, when both beta chain alleles are affected, this is known as beta thalassemia major, also known as Cooley's anemia. There's two major problems in patients with beta thalassemia major, firstly being that with deficient levels of beta chains, the alpha chains will be more likely to form tetramers with gamma and delta chains, respectively creating more fetal hemoglobin and hemoglobin A2 and this inversely leads to a reduced synthesis of the normally dominant hemoglobin A. The second and more serious problem of beta thalassemia major is that the excessive levels of alpha chains will precipitate out and form insoluble inclusion bodies within the cell that can cause intramedullary hemolysis of red blood cell precursors, and these patients will often require chronic blood transfusions. One of the potential ways a test question writer will see if you understand the pathophysiology of thalassemia is by showing you the results of a hemoglobin gel electrophoresis, which demonstrates the relative levels of hemoglobin A, A2, F, and other hemoglobin variants. In silent carriers, or those with alpha thalassemia trait, hemoglobin electrophoresis will typically be normal, while in more severe cases of alpha thalassemia, the hemoglobin electrophoresis will demonstrate elevated levels of the pathologic hemoglobin H and hemoglobin BARTs. In beta thalassemia, the minor form may show minor elevations in hemoglobin F and A2, while beta thalassemia major will often show an absence of hemoglobin A with very high levels of hemoglobin F. There are a few other hemoglobin variants that I'll briefly mention, such as hemoglobin C, D, and E, except that these are typically harmless on their own, other than in those individuals who are unfortunate enough to simultaneously inherit a trait for either beta or alpha thalassemia, or sickle cell trait, along with the hemoglobin C, D, or E variant, in which case they're more likely to experience symptoms of chronic hemolysis. Next up, let's discuss hereditary spherocytosis. Hereditary spherocytosis is actually the number one most common cause of hemolytic anemia, 
and this is due to a defect in one of several proteins that are responsible for maintaining the flexible biconcave shape of red blood cells. Some of the implicated proteins that you might see include spectrin, ankyrin, band 3, and protein 4.2. Hereditary spherocytosis is another cause of microcytic anemia, but these cells will also typically have an elevated mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration, or MCHC, due to decreased surface-to-volume ratio, and these cells are very easy to identify on a peripheral smear because they are small, round, and lack the central pallor that is normally seen in red blood cells. You should be aware, however, that the presence of spherocytes are not diagnostic for hereditary spherocytosis, as they can also be seen in other conditions such as autoimmune hemolytic anemia and certain myelodysplastic syndromes. Spherocytes are abnormal red blood cells and thus are recognized by their reticuloendothelial system and are subsequently phagocytosed, leading to splenomegaly. The classic presentation for hereditary spherocytosis is a young child with anemia, splenomegaly, and jaundice, often with a family history of similar symptoms. The gold standard diagnostic test for hereditary spherocytosis is with flow cytometry, but you may also see the osmotic fragility test being used, wherein erythrocytes are placed under pressure in order to evaluate how fragile they are. Treatment for hereditary spherocytosis is with chronic blood transfusions, and in severe cases where the spleen gets too large, then splenectomy would be indicated, since an enlarged spleen is highly prone to rupture in the event of a trauma. Keep in mind that any patient who is planned for a splenectomy must also be on antibiotic prophylaxis and be vaccinated against strep pneumo, Neisseria meningitidis, and Haemophilus influenza type B. Next up, let's discuss glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, or G6PD. G6PD deficiency is actually the number one most common enzyme deficiency in the world, and it is an X-linked disorder of a critical enzyme in the pentose phosphate pathway, used to convert NADP plus into NADPH, and then NADPH can go on to act as a substrate for the enzyme glutathione reductase, a major scavenger for eliminating free radicals. Red blood cells are particularly susceptible to free radicals, due both to their intrinsic affinity with oxygen, which creates reactive oxygen species, but also due to their lack of organelles to replace damaged cell structures. Most patients with G6PD deficiency are totally asymptomatic, until an event occurs in which there is a rapid influx of reactive oxygen species, at which point the red blood cells cannot tolerate the accumulated damage and eventually burst. This is commonly the result of exposure to certain medications, particularly anti-malarial drugs, sulfa-containing drugs, and aspirin, but also can be caused by certain foods, such as fava beans. The classic presentation for G6PD deficiency is a young boy who recently started taking a new medication, then shortly after begins to experience signs of hemolytic anemia, such as jaundice, splenomegaly, and dark-colored urine. On a peripheral smear, patients with G6PD deficiency will often have red blood cells with Heinz body inclusions, which are basically clumps of oxidized hemoglobin, and you may also see bite cells, which are literally just red blood cells with bites taken out of them from splenic macrophages. Treatment for G6PD deficiency is to remove the offending agent and to transfuse in severe cases with a hemoglobin less than 7 or 8 grams per deciliter. Next up, let's discuss the other major enzyme deficiency that can result in hemolysis, and that's pyruvate kinase deficiency. Red blood cells don't have any mitochondria, and therefore are solely reliant upon the energy from ATP generated during anaerobic glycolysis. 
Pyruvate kinase is a critical enzyme in the process of anaerobic glycolysis, wherein phosphoenolpyruvate is converted into pyruvate and yielding 1 ATP. And so in individuals with a deficiency in pyruvate kinase, red blood cells won't be able to function properly and will accumulate cellular damage and be targeted for extravascular hemolysis. Treatment of pyruvate kinase deficiency is with chronic blood transfusions. Next up, let's discuss microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. There are several different clinical scenarios that can lead to microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, and a common feature shared among them is the presence of schistocytes on a peripheral smear. Schistocytes, also known as helmet cells, are fragmented red blood cells that were damaged in the circulation. Thrombotic microangiopathies are a subset of microangiopathic hemolytic anemias and are characterized by microthrombi within the circulation that cause mechanical rupture of red blood cells, and these are often associated with acute kidney injury, as the procoagulant state has the potential to block off entire blood vessels to the kidney. Let's go through some of the more common of these microangiopathic hemolytic anemias now. Disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, is a critical condition characterized by acute widespread hypercoagulation, often in the setting of severe sepsis, but may also result from certain cancers, snake bites, severe trauma, and in some obstetrical complications such as placental abruption and HELP syndrome, which stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. The classic presentation of DIC is in critical patients with blood oozing from multiple sites, including IV lines, the gums, and the rectum. And treatment for DIC is centered around reversing the underlying cause. And this can include antibiotics for sepsis, delivery of the baby for obstetrical complications, or exploratory surgery in cases of severe trauma. Next up, hemolytic uremic syndrome is another cause of mechanical hemolysis. And this is characterized by the triad of thrombocytopenia, acute kidney injury, and microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. The most common cause for hemolytic uremic syndrome is from shigatoxin, commonly associated with enterohemorrhagic E. coli found in undercooked beef. And so these patients will typically present with fever, bloody diarrhea, and oliguria. And what is the most commonly implicated E. coli serotype implicated with shigatoxin? That's right, it's O157H7, which is just another one of those random things that our friends at the NBME want us all to know for some reason. Very good. Treatment of hemolytic uremic syndrome is mostly supportive with IV fluids, while also being careful to not overhydrate the patient in light of their kidney injury. Next up, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, or TTP, is another microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, this time caused by low levels of the protein Adam TS13, which is a protease involved in the breakdown of von Willebrand factor. In the absence of Adam TS13, von Willebrand factor accumulates in the bloodstream and causes unregulated microthrombi formation, resulting in the mechanical lysis of red blood cells. TTP may sometimes be caused by a rare genetic deficiency in Adam TS13 activity. However, it is more commonly due to the generation of autoantibodies targeted against Adam TS13. Treatment for TTP is to eliminate the autoantibodies against ADAMTS13, and this can be achieved with high-dose corticosteroids in conjunction with plasmapheresis, wherein the patient's antibody-containing plasma is exchanged for healthy donor plasma. Next up is hypertensive crisis, defined as a systolic blood pressure over 180 millimeters of mercury and a diastolic pressure of over 120. 
and this is also capable of causing a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. The way this works is that when there's a rapid rise in blood pressure, this will trigger a massive vasoconstriction throughout the body, and red blood cells will burst as they are forcefully pumped through these tight vessels. The biggest problem facing these patients is the risk of end organ damage, at which point it is classified as a hypertensive emergency, and treatment is to gradually lower the pressure using antihypertensive agents such as nicardipine, sodium nitroprusside, labetalol, or esmolol. Next up, mechanical heart valves have historically been implicated for causing hemolytic anemia in some patients. However, this isn't as much of an issue anymore with modern biologic valves. If a patient with a recent heart valve does have a new onset hemolytic anemia in the absence of any other obvious causes, then this could be an indication to replace the valve. One last cause of mechanical hemolytic anemia I'll mention is a bizarre situation that can happen to some people performing certain repetitive high-impact activities such as long-distance running or even something like playing the conga drums. These sorts of repetitive high-impact activities can actually cause hemolysis and the treatment here is to just stop doing that activity. Let's shift our attention now to autoimmune-mediated hemolytic anemia. Pretty much every disorder we've discussed so far describes red blood cell hemolysis occurring as a result of some sort of mechanical insult or an inborn error in red blood cell formation. All of these examples are considered Coombs negative anemias, meaning that they have a negative direct antibody test result. Direct antibody testing, or DAT, is when washed red blood cells are mixed with certain reagents that can detect the presence of IgG or complement C3 that might be bound to the red blood cell surface. Autoimmune hemolytic anemias can be further classified as either warm or cold, and all this means is that there are some conditions which are more likely to produce IgG antibodies causing red blood cell agglutination at body temperature, and other conditions that are more likely to produce IgM and complement proteins to cause red blood cell agglutination at colder temperatures, such as when the blood circulates through the fingers or toes. Both warm and cold glutenins can arise in the setting of certain lymphoproliferative disorders, but more commonly, warm agglutinins are likely to form secondary to autoimmune conditions, while cold agglutinins are more likely to be seen secondary to certain infections, such as mycoplasma, Epstein-Barr virus, and hepatitis C. When cold agglutinins are detected, your next step is to determine whether this is likely to be secondary to an infection or more sinisterly from a primary B-cell lymphoproliferative disorder, and this can be determined by performing a bone marrow biopsy. If the biopsy is positive for B-cell lymphoproliferation, then treatment would include rituximab, which is a monoclonal antibody targeted against the CD20 marker of B-cells. Then there are the mixed cryoglobulin disorders such as hepatitis C, wherein cold agglutinins arise both from primary lymphoproliferation as well as secondary to the infection, and these are treated with a combination of rituximab and antiviral therapies. Next, let's discuss paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria is a somatic X-linked disorder of the PIGA gene, characterized by a deficiency in GPI anchoring proteins, and this results in complement-mediated hemolysis. Normally, GPI anchoring proteins sit on the surface of red blood cells and function by helping the red blood cell to adhere to certain proteins, specifically the complement-inhibiting proteins CD55 and CD59. In patients with paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, their red blood cells don't have the capacity to adhere to CD55 and CD59, 
and thus will become targets for intravascular complement-mediated hemolysis. The classic presentation of paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria is a young to middle-aged adult with fatigue, abdominal pain, and dark urine at night or first thing in the morning. One of the biggest causes of morbidity and mortality for patients with paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria is a significantly increased risk for venous thromboembolism, with the cerebral and or hepatic veins being commonly implicated sites. The gold standard diagnosis of paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria is with flow cytometry, wherein fluorescent antibodies can be used to detect the presence of GPI anchoring proteins. Treatment of paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria is with newer complement-blocking agents, such as ecoluzumab and ravaluzumab, which prevent the formation of the membrane attack complex and thus prevent hemolysis. Now let's mention a few different types of adverse reactions that can occur during or after blood transfusions. Allergic reactions feature urticaria and or anaphylaxis, and these are IgE-mediated and do not typically feature hemolysis. Febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reactions are defined as a rise in temperature after receiving a blood transfusion, but there is no hemolysis. Then there's hemolytic transfusion reactions, which can be broken down into acute and delayed reactions. Acute hemolytic transfusion reactions occur within 24 hours of transfusion and are usually due to an ABO mismatch, but can also be caused by Duffy and Kell antigens triggering antibodies in the recipient to bind to the donor blood. Patients with an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction will typically have fever, flank pain, and dark urine. Delayed hemolytic transfusion reactions occur anytime after 24 hours after transfusion and can even be delayed up until a few weeks later. And these are usually due to host antibodies that were formed against RH, either from a prior pregnancy or from a prior blood transfusion. Graft-versus-host transfusion reactions are when donor lymphocytes attack recipient antigens, and these are more commonly seen in immunocompromised patients. And then there are non-immune-mediated transfusion reactions, and these are mostly due to human error, such as administering blood that is too warm, too cold, or not in the proper osmotic concentration, leading to hemolysis without any involvement from the immune system. Next, let's talk about drug-induced hemolysis. Drug-induced hemolysis can occur via a few different mechanisms, most common of which is immunogenic haptin formation, wherein small molecular weight drugs, such as penicillin, binds with compounds on red blood cell surfaces and trigger an autoimmune response with resultant hemolysis. Then there is also non-immune-mediated drug-induced hemolysis, and this is a direct effect of the drug itself causing hemolysis, and the two most commonly implicated agents for this are dapsone and sulfasalazine, respectively used in the treatment of leprosy and ulcerative colitis. Next up, let's discuss malaria. Malaria is a parasitic infection transmitted by the Anopheles mosquito and is caused by three main species, Plasmodium falciparum, ovale, and vivax. Symptoms of malaria include cyclical fevers and signs of hemolytic anemia. Malaria exerts its hemolytic effects by invading red blood cells, consuming hemoglobin, and causing cellular damage that results in an increased adherence of red blood cells to the endothelial walls with resultant hemolysis. Diagnosis of malaria can be made by identifying immature trophozoites on a gymza-stained peripheral smear, which look like purple spots within the red blood cells, and these can sometimes appear crescent or ring-shaped depending on the species and their stage in the life cycle. Treatment for malaria is with either chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, 
both of which target the parasite in the erythrocytic stage, but you must also be sure to include primaquine in the regimen, as this is effective against the dormant hypnozoites of P. ovale and P. vivax, which like to reside in the liver. Next up, let's discuss babesiosis. Babesiosis is caused by the parasite Babesia, which is endemic to the northeast and midwestern United States, and is transmitted by the same vector implicated in transmitting Lyme disease, the Ixodes tick. Babesia is similar to malaria in that they both infect red blood cells, although unlike malaria, Babesia does not typically cause hemolysis. Most patients with Babesiosis will be completely asymptomatic, but the classic presentation for Babesia is in a patient who was recently treated for Lyme disease but continues to have flu-like symptoms. And this is because Babesia and Borrelia burgdorferi will often co-infect since they are transmitted by the same vector. And this can be treated with atovaquone plus azithromycin. Let's shift our attention now to the general idea of iron deficiency anemia. Iron deficiency anemia is actually the number one most common cause of anemia worldwide. And this can result from either inadequate iron intake, decreased intestinal absorption of iron, or from excessive blood loss. Inadequate iron intake can be seen in alcoholics, those who live in resource-poor areas, those with increased metabolic requirements, such as during pregnancy, and in babies who are exclusively breastfed, since breast milk does not contain adequate iron levels, and thus these babies should be supplemented with iron drops. Decreased iron absorption may be seen in patients with celiac disease or other intestinal issues, and this can be mitigated by consuming vitamin C along with the iron as this can enhance the absorption of ferrous iron. Anemia of chronic disease is another condition that can result in the decreased absorption of iron. This is because long-standing inflammatory states can increase the production of a liver protein known as hepcidin, and what hepcidin does is bind to the ferroportin receptor, effectively blocking the intestinal absorption of iron as well as sequestering iron within the liver and macrophages. The net effect of this is to limit the availability of iron to any potential pathogen, but in doing so will also limit the amount of iron available for erythropoiesis. Iron deficiency can also be seen in babies that exclusively drink cow's milk, and this is due to a combination of factors within cow's milk that impact iron absorption as well as occult GI bleeding that may occur in some babies. Other causes of bleeding that can result in iron deficiency include GI bleeding from chronic NSAID use, Heliobacter pylori infection, gastrointestinal cancer, menorrhagia or excessive menstruation, and any recent surgeries or trauma. The red blood cells of iron deficiency anemia will often be microcytic, hypochromic, and have a high red cell distribution width, or RDW, meaning that there's a wide range in the size of the red blood cells that are seen. These patients will also typically have low serum ferritin and a high total iron binding capacity, or TIBC. Although you should keep in mind that ferritin is also an acute phase reactant and may be elevated if the patient has a concurrent inflammatory condition. Treatment of iron deficiency anemia is to identify and reverse the cause and to supplement with oral ferrous iron sulfate, which may have the side effects of constipation, nausea, and decreased appetite. One rare sequelae of iron deficiency anemia is something called Plummer-Vinson syndrome, and this is characterized by the triad of iron deficiency, dysphagia, and upper esophageal webs identified on a barium swallow. The mechanism behind Plummer-Vinson syndrome is not well understood, and treatment is with ferrous iron sulfate supplementation and endoscopic dilation of the esophageal webs in order to relieve the dysphagia. 
Let's move on now to the topic of megaloblastic anemia. Megaloblastic anemia is a disorder of DNA synthesis and results in abnormally large red blood cells, usually with a mean corpuscular volume greater than 115 femtoliters. The most common cause for megaloblastic anemia is from deficiencies in either folate or vitamin B12. True nutritional deficiencies in either folate or B12 are actually quite rare in developed countries and respectively are more likely to be seen in alcoholics or those following a vegan diet without proper supplementation. One of the more common causes for megaloblastic anemia is actually due to a phenomenon known as pernicious anemia, wherein autoimmune antibodies are formed against intrinsic factor and or gastric parietal cells, which is where intrinsic factor is produced. And this is a problem because intrinsic factor is required for the absorption of vitamin B12 in the terminal ileum. On that same note, any individuals with reduced absorptive capacity in the terminal ileum may also be affected, including those with celiac disease, tropical sprue, or a history of partial colectomy. The peripheral smear of megaloblastic anemia will often show macrocytic cells with accompanying hypersegmented neutrophils with 3-5 to five lobed nuclei. But the key here in differentiating between folate deficiency from B12 deficiency is to look at the levels of methylmalonic acid on the labs. Vitamin B12 is a cofactor needed to produce coenzyme A, which is a compound derived from methylmalonic acid, and so methylmalonic acid will tend to accumulate in B12 deficiency, whereas it will be normal in folate deficiency. Another clue to differentiate between B12 and folate deficiency is that deficiency in B12 is more likely to result in neurological symptoms such as paresthesias and a loss of proprioception and vibratory sensation, and patients with B12 deficiency will also commonly report painful swelling of the tongue, or glossitis. Treatment for megaloblastic anemia is to supplement with either folic acid or intramuscular B12 injections, depending on which you determine to be the root cause. But also keep in mind that patients with pernicious anemia are at increased risk for developing gastric adenocarcinoma due to chronic autoimmune inflammation of the stomach, and thus should also be screened with an endoscopy and biopsy. Next up, let's discuss lead poisoning. Lead poisoning is defined as serum lead levels exceeding 5 micrograms per deciliter, and this is most commonly seen in kids that live in houses that were built prior to 1978 which is the year lead-based paint became illegal in the United States, but may also result from kids playing with old toys or in adults who work in construction or manufacturing. Lead poisoning can deposit and cause symptoms in pretty much every part of the body, but the most prominent symptoms of lead poisoning are cognitive and behavioral changes, and in severe cases can result in encephalopathy and seizure development. Anemia is also present in lead poisoning, as lead can disrupt many of the enzymes involved in heme production and cell membrane integrity, and on peripheral smear will have characteristic basophilic stippling, which are tiny granules of ribosomal RNA scattered throughout the cytoplasm. Most children are screened for lead toxicity at some time in early childhood, and if levels are greater than 45 in kids or 70 in adults, then treatment is with either succimer, EDTA, or dimer caparol. Next up, let's discuss porphyria. Porphyrias are a spectrum of disorders relating to defective synthesis of heme, usually due to a deficiency in one of the many enzymes in heme production found in either the liver or the bone marrow. First, there's acute intermittent porphyria, and the classic presentation for acute intermittent porphyria is in a young woman who experiences bouts of abdominal pain, peripheral neuropathy, 
and psychiatric disturbances, usually exacerbated by alcohol, infection, or certain anticonvulsant drugs. Contrast this to porphyria cutanea tarda, where the big difference here is skin involvement. As porphyrins build up in the bloodstream, energy from the sun can come through and interact with these porphyrins to induce reactive oxygen species formation, with results in blistering and hyper or hypopigmented lesions of the skin. Both acute intermittent porphyria and porphyria cutanea tarda can be diagnosed by detecting porphyrins in the urine, such as aminolevulinic acid, ALA, or porphobolinogen, PBG. Treatment for acute intermittent porphyria is with IV heme in order to bypass any defective enzymes, while porphyria cutanea tarda is treated by avoiding sun exposure. Next up, let's discuss sideroblastic anemia. Sideroblastic anemia is caused by improper utilization of iron during erythropoiesis. Unlike iron deficiency anemia, sideroblastic anemia will actually have a normal to high level of iron in the body, represented by a ferritin level of over 1,000 micrograms per liter. It's just that the body isn't able to properly utilize this iron, and the cause of this can be from exposure to certain toxins, genetic mutations, or in the early stages of hematologic malignancies. No matter the cause, all cases of sideroblastic anemia are characterized by the presence of sideroblasts on a bone marrow biopsy, which are rings of iron-laden mitochondria that circumscribe the nucleus of red blood cell precursors. Some causes of sideroblastic anemia, such as exposure to isoniazid, are reversible with the use of pyridoxine, or vitamin B6, while more severe cases require blood transfusions and or hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. Let's shift our attention now to bone marrow failure, specifically aplastic anemia. Aplastic anemia is defined by the absence of two or more bone marrow cell lines, so these patients will have low red blood cells and low reticulocytes, low neutrophils, and low platelets. About half of all cases of aplastic anemia are due to unknown causes, but many cases are found to be due to autoimmune destruction or as the result of exposure to certain toxins or radiation. Most cases of aplastic anemia occur in young people under 30 and will present with symptoms of anemia as well as increased bleeding, petechiae or purpura under the skin, and or recurrent infections. Transient aplastic anemia can also result from infection with parvovirus B19. Parvovirus B19, the causative agent of erythema infectiosum, also known as fifth disease, will manifest in most healthy individuals as the so-called slapped cheek fever with associated polyarthralgia. But in individuals with chronic hemolytic anemia, such as sickle cell, parvovirus B19 can actually cause an aplastic crisis, which can be treated with transfusions of red blood cells and IVIG. On bone marrow biopsy, patients with aplastic anemia will have what's called a dry tap, caused by hypocellularity within the bone marrow and subsequent fatty infiltration. Treatment of aplastic anemia depends on the cause, with the removal of any offending agents if known, or if unknown, then the treatment varies depending on the patient's age and whether or not they have an HLA-matched donor that can provide a bone marrow transplant. In patients that are otherwise healthy, the first-line treatment is to perform a bone marrow transplant and not to give immunosuppressants. But if the patient is over 50 and there is no HLA-matched donor, then the first-line therapy is to give a full-dose regimen of various immunosuppressants in order to tamper down the immune-mediated destruction of bone marrow progenitors. There are also a few rare causes of congenitally acquired aplastic anemia, so let's go through a few of those now. 
Fanconi anemia is the most common hereditary form of aplastic anemia, and this is an X-linked disorder characterized by a defect in double-stranded DNA repair. Patients with Fanconi anemia will often have anatomical defects at birth, such as hypoplastic thumbs and or radial bones, but the anemia won't develop until early childhood, at which time the cumulative UV and ionizing radiation causes genomic instability and ultimately pancytopenia, with low hemoglobin with an increased MCV, low neutrophils, and low platelets. Diagnosis of Fanconi anemia is with something called the chromosomal fragility test, wherein a sample of the patient's cells are exposed to DNA cross-linking agents, and a positive test is when the DNA is unable to withstand the damage. Let's contrast this to diamond black fan anemia, which is another macrocytic disorder of hematopoietic stem cells, except unlike Fanconi anemia, which affects all three cell lines, diamond black fan anemia will typically only affect the erythroid cell line, resulting in a pure red cell aplasia. Diamond's black fan anemia is caused by a ribosomal gene mutation on chromosome 11 that causes apoptosis of red blood cell progenitors, but these patients will typically have normal or even high levels of platelets and leukocytes. Another distinction between Fanconi anemia and Diamond's black fan anemia is in the birth defects, where Fanconi anemia will often have hypoplastic thumb and radial bones, whereas Diamond's black fan anemia is characterized by triphalangeal thumbs. Treatment for diamond black fan anemia is with steroids, which have an anti-apoptotic effect on erythroid progenitors. But in the long term, these patients will need chronic blood transfusions with iron chelation therapy with deferoxamine. And if they can't tolerate that, then hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is curative. Next up, let's discuss polycythemia. Polycythemia is an overall increase in the amount of red blood cells and this can lead to a state of hyperviscosity and can predispose the patient to thrombotic events. Primary polycythemia, also known as polycythemia vera, is a clonal disorder of hematopoietic stem cells caused by a JAK2 mutation, and the classic symptom for this is aquagenic pruritus, which is a fancy way of saying that their skin gets very itchy when exposed to hot water. Secondary polycythemia can be caused by any condition characterized by chronic hypoxia, as this is the stimulus for erythropoietin production in the kidney. The key laboratory finding to differentiate primary versus secondary polycythemia is to look at the erythropoietin levels. If EPO is low, then it's polycythemia vera. If EPO is high, then this indicates secondary polycythemia from chronic hypoxia. Treatment of polycythemia is with phlebotomy to reach a goal hematocrit of 45%, aspirin to reduce thrombotic events in high-risk patients, and hydroxyurea has also been shown to be helpful. Next up, let's discuss a few toxic exposures that can affect red blood cells. Methemoglobinemia is when there is something in the blood that causes the reduced ferrous Fe2 plus form of iron to be oxidized into the ferric Fe3 plus form. This can result from certain local anesthetics such as benzocaine or in infants who consume well water with excessive level of nitrates. Methemoglobinemia is a problem because when hemoglobin contains the ferric Fe3 plus form of iron, this can create an allosteric change which shifts the oxygenation dissociation curve to the left, resulting in decreased oxygen delivery and tissue hypoxia. Patients with methemoglobinemia will have cyanosis, dyspnea, hypoxemia that is refractory to supplemental oxygen therapy, and during phlebotomy you will notice characteristic chocolate brown blood. Pulse oximetry will be low for these patients, about 85%, but 
but your next step is going to be to order an arterial blood gas. And on the blood gas, you will see an oxygen saturation gap, characterized by a normal partial pressure of oxygen dissolved in the blood, as compared to the low oxygen saturation of hemoglobin determined by the pulse ox. Treatment of methemoglobinemia is with methylene blue, which acts as an electron donor, allowing one of our body's own enzymes to reduce methemoglobin back into its ferrous 2 plus form. Next up is carbon monoxide poisoning. Carbon monoxide poisoning is typically caused by gas leaks, house fires, burning wood indoors, or they might even just be super vague and say that it was wintertime in the question stem. The problem with carbon monoxide is that it has a much higher affinity for heme as compared to oxygen causing it to be displaced. And it will also interfere with mitochondrial function and cause oxidative stress and ischemia to various parts of the body, especially those tissues with high oxygen demand, such as the brain and the heart. Patients with cyanide poisoning will typically have nausea, dizziness, dyspnea, and characteristic cherry red lips. And treatment is with 100% oxygen with a non-rebreather mask or intubation. However, in severe cases, many patients will suffer long-term neurological sequelae and or cardiac injury. And lastly, I'll just mention one more rare cause of anemia, and that's hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, or HLH. HLH can present at any age, and this is a disorder of the innate immune system characterized by aberrant activity of macrophages, CD8-positive cytotoxic killer cells, and natural killer cells, all of which go haywire and cause cytokine storms and massive multisystem inflammation. And this includes the lysis of red blood cells causing severe anemia. On bone marrow biopsy, these patients will have hemophagocytosis, which is when the phagocytes infiltrate the bone marrow and engulf all the erythroid progenitor cells. And treatment is with immunosuppressants and hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. And that about wraps it up. There's only one way to end an episode like this, and that's with some practice questions. Question 1. A 6-year-old boy with sickle cell anemia is brought to your office for a routine well-child visit. He was diagnosed with sickle cell anemia via newborn screen, and has been seen in the emergency department a handful of times for vaso-occlusive pain episodes, but never required hospitalization. He is up-to-date on immunizations, and his current medications include hydroxyurea and daily oral penicillin prophylaxis. Recent labs show a hemoglobin of 9.2, which is at his baseline, and his physical exam is unremarkable, except for mild splenomegaly. There are no current complaints. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? A. Discontinue penicillin. B. Refer to ophthalmology for annual retinal screening. C. Refer to surgery for prophylactic splenectomy. Or D. No interventions are indicated at this time. Answer. A. Discontinue penicillin. This relatively uncomplicated patient with sickle cell anemia is 6 years old, meaning they are 1 year over the age at which penicillin prophylaxis is no longer recommended, and so discontinuation would be warranted. Annual retinal screening is a requirement for patients on hydroxychloroquine, a drug often used for the treatment of systemic lupus erythematosus, not sickle cell anemia. And prophylactic splenectomy is a last resort for patients with severe refractory extravascular hemolysis, or in cases of severe splenomegaly, as this can predispose the spleen to rupture from trauma. But since neither of these are the case for this patient, then it is best to leave the spleen alone. 
Question 2. A five-year-old African-American boy is brought into your office with new-onset fatigue, pallor, and dark-colored urine. He has no chronic medical conditions, but he was seen in your office three days ago for a sore throat and was prescribed trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Physical exam today is remarkable for scleral icterus and mild tenderness to palpation in the right upper quadrant of the abdomen. Laboratory evaluation is significant for a hemoglobin of 7.2 grams per deciliter. Which of the following is the most likely cause for this patient's symptoms? A. Viral-induced aplastic crisis. B. Post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. C. Autoimmune-mediated hemolysis of red blood cells. Or D. Oxidative stress due to enzymatic deficiency. Answer. D. Oxidative stress due to enzymatic deficiency. This African-American boy with signs of hemolytic anemia shortly after initiating therapy with a sulfa-containing drug is a classic case of G6PD deficiency. Transient aplastic crisis can sometimes be seen in chronic hemolytic patients that are infected with parvovirus B19. However, this patient has no known history of hemolysis and doesn't have the characteristic slapped cheek fever of parvovirus B19. Post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis can cause a darkening of the urine, but this isn't usually seen until several weeks after infection. Autoimmune-mediated red blood cell destruction is a possibility and can be ruled out with a Coombs test, but given this clinical scenario, the much more likely cause is from G6PD deficiency. Question 3. A 28-year-old woman presents to your office with a four-month history of fatigue, palpitations, and heavy menstrual bleeding. There is no pain associated with her menstrual bleeding, but often she will go through several soaked pads a day with associated blood clots on the pad. Which of the following values is most likely to be seen on an iron panel for this patient? A. Ferritin down, MCV up, RDW down, TIBC up. B. Ferritin up, MCV down, RDW down, TIBC up. C. Ferritin down, MCV down, RDW up, and TIBC up. Or D. Ferritin up, MCV down, RDW up, and TIBC down. Answer. C. Ferritin down, MCV down, RDW up, and TIBC up. This woman with menorrhagia likely has iron deficiency anemia due to excessive blood loss. In iron deficiency anemia, ferritin is down, representing low total iron storage. MCV is down, representing microcytic anemia. RDW is up, representing a wide range of red blood cell sizes. And TIBC is up, representing the body's high propensity to want to transport iron into the cell. Question 4. A 23-year-old man with a medical history of Crohn's disease status post-ascending colectomy and terminal ileectomy two years prior presents to your office with a one-week history of fatigue, tremor, and tingling in his fingers. He states that his Crohn's has been mostly under control and that he's compliant with his medications. He has a varied diet, including lots of meats and vegetables, 
is sexually active with one female partner with whom he consistently uses condoms, and he reports daily marijuana usage, but denies any other drug or alcohol use. On laboratory evaluation, he is found to have a hemoglobin level of 8.2 grams per deciliter, down from a baseline of 10.5, with an MCV of 121 femtoliters. Ferritin levels are normal. Which of the following is the most likely to also be present in this patient? A. Circulating antibodies against gastric parietal cells. B. Hypersegmented neutrophils on peripheral smear. C. Elevated levels of hemoglobin H. Or D. Multiple foci of white matter infarcts on brain MRI. Answer B. Hypersegmented neutrophils on peripheral smear. This patient with a history of partial colectomy is having signs and symptoms consistent with megaloblastic anemia. Megaloblastic anemia should be suspected in any patient with an MCV over 115 femtoliters, and the most common cause is due to a deficiency in either folate or vitamin B12. Patients with megaloblastic anemia will show megaloblasts on a bone marrow biopsy, and will also display immature hypersegmented neutrophils on a peripheral smear. Pernicious anemia is a known cause of megaloblastic anemia, in which autoantibodies are formed against either intrinsic factor or gastric parietal cells, resulting in malabsorption of vitamin B12 in the terminal ileum. However, given this patient's history of partial colectomy, this is less likely to be the causative etiology. Hemoglobin H is an abnormal variant of hemoglobin composed of four beta chains, and is seen in some forms of alpha-thalassemia, but not megaloblastic anemia and multiple foci of white matter infarcts may be seen in several prothrombotic conditions, but megaloblastic anemia is not typically one of them.